Yeah. So uh, we had a really cold week. Uh, so how was it for you guys? <laughs> Not bad. I mean, stayed inside most of the time. So what? You didn't. Uh, you didn't get out in this nice crisp <laughs> weather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It wasn't too. Like I mean, <laughs> the furnace in my basement doesn't work super well, so it does get a little more chilly down here than uh, upstairs. But uh, eh, it was still good. Just throwing a sweater. Sweatpants and some warm socks, and I'm good to go. And how about you, uh, Kevin? Did you you had to go to work some? I, in, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I had to go. Unfortunately, it was like way too cold. And I was just talking to Dan earlier that it was just so cold. I there's nothing you can do, and with the COVID and everything, and just I think everyone's feeling exhausted. Yeah, it just really... I don't know about you. Just kind of drained, I guess. It's, uh, you know, that same old, same old constantly, and then you throw the cold on top of it, and it's just, ah, like, I know how many people are looking forward to spring. I I know it doesn't make COVID go away, but just for something, you know? But you know what we did? (laughs) You went ice fishing. Yes, we did. And... And did you catch any fish? uh, Well, so the first day... We went to Hass Lake because we were trying out our new equipment. And it's a good thing that we did because that was the coldest day. It, with the wind, it was definitely minus 30 than some. Um, and so luckily, we had our fishing tent, our heater. Our, uh, I realized I had to get new gloves because my hands were freezing. But anyway, um, we were basically just testing everything out. So all we did was just slap the tent up. We didn't put any thought into it. Uh, fired up the heater, drilled some holes, threw a line down just to see if we could get the new rods to sink bottom or whatever. And would you believe, as soon as I threw my uh, line down, I actually got a trout on the <laughs> on the line. But because we weren't prepared, the hole the hole wasn't drilled all the way through. So at the very bottom, the line could come up. But there wasn't enough room to get the fish up to the bigger open spot. <laughs> so I ended up losing the bloody fish and the hook and the whole thing. I was not happy. But anyway, at least we knew. Uh, remember when we were back when we were talking about the um, the oxygen levels in the, the pothole lakes and that whole method of the uh, aerating them to, to get the, yeah. to more oxygen in for the algae blooms and that kind of thing. So Hass... This year, it's the first time in I don't know how long they actually stocked it with fish. So they put aerators in over the summer and they left them on over the winter. And I think that's made a big difference because lo and behold, I had a fish right away. The next day, we were actually going out to Chickakoo. And that was the one where I said I saw the aerators in over the summer. But interestingly enough, no aerators to be seen there when we showed up. And this time we put more thought into it and drilled our holes all the way through in the spot that we thought, you know, if there's going to be fish, here they are. Some little shrimp and water bugs came up. So at least there's some oxygen, not a fish to be had. And and we weren't the only ones out there. Nobody saw any fish. So, I mean, not to say that there aren't some, but I think probably the numbers are greatly reduced because lack of oxygen. So I find that very interesting that those aerators, at least from what we're seeing, seem to make a big difference in these pothole lakes because there's no inlet or outlet of other water. So there's no, without any running water coming in or out, you're not moving the water and increasing the oxygen naturally. So it's just a big 
yeah, it's just big lump of stagnant water. <laughs> so, so yeah, anyway, uh, so yeah, no fish on the second day. So sorry, Kevin, but now we know we can go back to Haas and hopefully catch some there. Welcome to the green scene. Again, on our good old source of silence daily at a, where was it? University of Connecticut. Uh, they were doing research on allergies caused by common ragweed. And this is mainly uh, in Europe uh, and looking at how, you know, how a few million people kind of suffer, like what, like what kind of symptoms do they get out of or coming from common ragweed? And, you know, you get your sniffles and your yeah, sneezing and wheezing and all that fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep. I, I get those too. Um, but I take so many drugs when I'm working. <laughs> Yay, and sometimes drugs. that even doesn't doesn't work sometimes uh but anyways yeah the study that they were doing uh they were looking at how to kind of mitigate that um or control it a little bit and they figured well common ragweed there and they say europe i didn't actually see where specifically but i mean common ragweed is uh invasive species for them there mm -hmm. and they were looking at okay how do we control this in a effective and I don't know if I want to say sustainable way, but uh, in a way that it doesn't require as much uh, human interference or like human or like anthropogenic, like <laughs> basically don't like not having people have to go and like, you know, spray or dig ragweed up or stuff like that. So what they want to do is introduce uh, introduce well, a beetle. The least invasive possible way for the invasive. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, they introduced a leaf beetle. Leaf beetle. Uh, yeah, because apparently they like to munch on ragweed. Oh. So that was that kind of that was their kind of thinking was introduce a pest that will hopefully reduce the common ragweed uh, issue. Because yeah, they were kind of going into how if we do this and reduce how much common ragweed is around, then in turn they're hoping that um, you know. There will be less allergy-related costs, mm -hmm. if, that, if that makes sense. Because well, I can see that, you know, that. It does cost a lot for, uh, what do they say, for either people just taking time off because they have yeah. such bad And medicine allergies. and everything else. And then, yeah, meds yeah. and stuff like that. So they think, well, this might be a, a cheaper way to kind of save some money. Like, <laughs> See, but now this is a funny thing. So the first stage, obviously, these leaf beetles have been found to go to town on ragweed and so there that mm -hmm. solves one problem but now i'm curious are there any ramifications for the leaf beetles like yeah that's wondering if they're just gonna know, go like once the ragweed's gone plant. are they gonna move to a different species or are is there suddenly going to be explosion of them and there's going to be leaf beetles everywhere or what you know it's interesting because uh everything is connected right so it'll be interesting to see how things evolve over time with that one <laughs> but but yeah i understand at least the initial idea of it so um yeah so d sorry did you have more with that or yeah like i mean they kind of get into it a little bit they say of course like you know this is still an ongoing research thing so they don't know well i mean again this is from 20 yeah 2020 mm -hmm. april 2020 of last year so pretty recent uh and they said yeah like we've been doing some research into yeah what are the effects that maybe we're not thinking about like, because we're focusing just on ragweed, but, like, are they targeting anything else? And then 
they said they found some studies or some information stating that this beetle, these leaf beetles can target uh, sunflower species, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but they don't have enough data to actually, you know, say for sure that it's doing it at a rate that's noticeable. Um, yeah, well, hopefully they've got a, a control area that they can mm-hmm. they can look at, right? So before they release yeah, they it were, on the masses. <laughs> yeah, where were they looking at? I think China, I think, was one of them, where they were finding that information about the beetles. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh. Somewhere else, too. Um, but anyways, yeah. So, yeah, they are looking into it, but, yeah, they haven't done enough research on kind of what, are, what other effects are happening other than yeah, it's in the early stages, just targeting so. the one species. Because, yeah, I mean, like any invasive species that you or any invasive or introduced pest, like control pest, yeah, it can target the thing that you're hoping that it's going to target, but you never know if it's going to You have unintended consequences of, well, it might go after something else or just po- its own population might explode and cause more issues. Because I'm just thinking of like <laughs> when they introduce rabbits into australia like that kind of backfired yeah didn't didn't go over well no yeah one thing does not always fix the other uh yeah it'll be interesting hopefully you you uh put yourself down to follow that so we can see what evolves over Mm -hmm. the next few years whether we're inundated by leaf beetles or whether people can go ah my allergies aren't bothering me now all is good uh yeah (laughs) yeah and along with that um the article I was talking about was also from, actually, no, I believe it was from CTV News. It was not from our Science Daily guys. Uh, and it was from back in February 8th of this year. So it was fairly new. And it was about um, basically the fact that the climate change is starting to affect the season for allergies and pollen um, by having it. Uh, appear on average about 20 days earlier, which people who suffer with allergies would not be overly thrilled about. Um, It also means the pollen loads are higher about by 20% uh, since 1990. So there's a trend. They're figuring the the global warming is is to blame pretty much for that uh, because it's actually the information has come from 60 different reporting stations across North America. So it's not even an isolated area. That's mm-hmm. why they're they're able to make these bigger generalizations, because if it was just one spot, it could be an enigma, right? Yeah. But um, so the higher CO2 levels have been proven to increase pollen production, which kind of makes sense because plants are our opposite, right? Like we thrive on oxygen. They like carbon dioxide. So anyway, the warmer it gets, the plants gr- start growing earlier, produce more pollen. Allergy sufferers have a worse time of it, so... Uh, that's something to keep in mind. So if you if you weren't already thinking of these other reasons to start uh, making changes to help the the climate shift, if you've got allergies, now here's the tipping point for you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and then um, I know it's not I directly mean, for that. Yeah, try to try to. Well, yeah, that I mean, window, Steve's cause... Steve's got allergies. Well, you got some allergies. I'm not even sure. Maybe I'm starting to develop a sensitivity, or maybe a few minor ones. And maybe it's just be, again, it could be because if the season's longer and the loads are higher, it's again maybe that tipping point. Some people who didn't have allergies before are developing them. I don't know, you know. Uh, but I know sometimes I wake up and my eyes are a little bit uh, gooped up or. I'm feeling a bit stuffed up or whatever as well. So it's hard to say. 
but um, not directly with the allergy part of it, along with that whole bigger picture climate shift thing, I actually found another article by uh, the Science Daily guys. This came out February 16th, so it's it's pretty new as well. And it's funny because in the back of my mind, large mammal extinction around, you know, 13,000 years ago, that whole coinciding with the uh, Ice Age thing, I always did think it was more of a climatic thing and less of a human thing because the human populations weren't that big then, right? And they were still fairly nomadic. But according to these guys at Max Planck Institute for Chemical Technology, that's a mouthful, they are saying, oh yeah, it's pretty definitive now that uh, the extinction of these larger mammals was due to climate change, not overhunting by humans. So so I found that kind of funny because I was like, I thought that all along. But okay. I don't know. What did you think? Did you think the whole mass extinction of the larger mammals was more human or climatic or something else? Yeah, I kind of thought it was more a human thing. And I thought, yeah, like, you know, our population, (laughs) you know, wasn't in the billions as it is now. But like, I thought it was just, yeah, us kind of harvesting a little too much or hunting a little too much. And over a long period of time, it, uh, yeah, caused this. Wasn't that weird? I don't know whether I was dreaming ahead to the future then or whether I was just the weird one. Because, yeah, I I kind of always thought, oh, yeah, well, you know, the things like the meteorites and the glacial receding and all these things, they probably were more likely than the humans at that point, right? But anyway, so this is just proving it uh, by they've been doing carbon dating and a bunch of things because obviously they can't count every single animal or every single human from the area but apparently the changes in the carbon dating of the soil substructure and everything else indicates uh overall the ebb and flows of different populations and that kind of thing so but yeah so there was actually at around what was it fourteen thousand seven hundred years ago there was an abrupt warming spell And then at about 12,900 years ago, uh, the big cold snap. And so between those two fluxes happening in a a relatively shorter period of time, I realize it's, you know, a few thousand years, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not very long at all. And so between those two fluctuations, the, uh, the larger mammals apparently just couldn't hack it. I thought that was interesting. Carry on. Carry on. Thanks, boss. Love it. I can hardly wait till we get a raise. <laughs> We're getting paid? I'll give oh. myself a raise first. Hi, welcome to the Plant Adventure Guide. Okay. Um, I thought I'd focus on some of the plants that really fit into our winter landscapes. So I was really dying to do something about the uh, our wolf willows, otherwise known as silverberry. And the reason being, of course, they've got a very silvery looking foliage to them. Uh, they've got a, a silvery white berry as well, which looks really cool in the fall, the winter, pretty much all year round, actually. But in the winter, it just looks like that extra snowy cool kind of look because of that silvery aspect of them they are one of the species that's more prevalent in uh, the prairie or the grasslandscapes because they can handle it a bit drier or handle fluxes of the wet versus dry um, versus a lot of our i know our woodland species up here and the wetland species obviously 
they like it wet. So it's a, it's a change that way too. So if you've got a drier landscape, it might be a great shrub for you to put in. They're pretty hardy. They only get to be like a max of, what is it, one to four meters, I think, in height. So they're not as large as a, as a full-blown tree. So they'll fit in a lot more semi-smaller spaces. You still need to have some room for them. Dan can probably attest to this with his soils background, but they're one of the uh, shrubs that actually is a nitrogen fixer, which can help improve your soil as well. Agreed. And of course, the, the common name wolf willow, they're not really a willow at all. They're in the, what is that, ole, I don't know if I say it right. I always get, I'm bad with the pronunciation of things, oleaster family. Is that how you would say it? As oh, opposed yeah. to it's either yeah. it's either ole it's oleaster it's oleaster or oleaster and I I don't know just knowing from the asters it just makes sense for me to say oleaster because oleaster just sounds like some storm out in the Maritimes I don't know <laughs> anyway but yeah uh, the buffalo berries are related to wolf willow so another cool plant there. But yeah, more, most of the time they occur on the drier hillsides, open meadows, prairie edges. Uh, they will move into overgrazed areas fairly readily because now there's a nice open strip of soil for them to get a hold on. And because of their root structure, they're very good at um, controlling soil erosion because their roots spread out and they travel fairly readily. But even though they can be invasive in certain situations, I wouldn't call them really aggressive. Um, they still have an open canopy, so all the, the vegetation around them doesn't seem to be affected by them at all. So you could easily grow them in a mixed setting with some forbs or grasses or whatever and not worry about them totally smothering them. We were talking about some of the, the nice parks to go see a while back as well. And another one of them would be Nose Hill Park down in Calgary. It's a great place if you want to see Wolf Willow and a bunch of the other uh, grassland or prairie type native species. There's quite a bunch of them there. Oh yeah, uh, of course, the edible usefulness part of it. Anyway, I do know that the uh, the indigenous people could make cordage from like rolling the bark and the like the inner bark and that kind of thing. And uh, they were also used for making bead necklaces because if any of you have actually seen the the fruit and the seed inside, it's a very large seed, but it's actually got vertical ridges on it. So like so so it actually appears like it's striped. And if you take off that mealy powdery outer coating and you polish them up, they actually have uh it's actually dark with kind of yellow striping, which actually looks kind of pretty. So I guess um back when the the pioneers, the Europeans came over and were introduced to our uh indigenous people, they did a lot of exchanges of these beaded necklaces and the Europeans sent a bunch of them home because they were a new, very interesting thing. So yeah, and they're definitely edible. They're very high in a lot of the vitamins and minerals, vitamin A, E, and uh, the, <laughs> the essential fatty acids too, which is really weird for most fruit type. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah, yeah. most fruit type like, stuff does, <laughs> not, does not have that. And so if, I, again, I'm not saying that it's got the greatest taste of it's fairly mealy and actually quite um, astringent, like bitter, puckery, whatever tasting, uh, generally cooking them would be better. 
But if you are looking for something with low nutritional value and you're stuck out in the wilderness, the uh, wolf willow berries would be a great one for you. Dan, did you have anything else to add? No, I'm just kind of thinking of, you. yeah, you mentioned the berries having a good source of fatty acid. Yeah, that's kind of an odd thing to hear coming from berries. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, normally it'd be um, a, a meat-based thing, right? So, yeah, or like, you know, your nuts, like, you know, your yeah. walnuts. Or, any, basically anything, sorry, anything with proteins is what I was trying to think of. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, no, it's, a, it's an odd one for sure. And then um, the other thing that's interesting them about, about them is they've got these bright yellow flowers and they occur usually around the end of May, beginning of June, somewhere in there. And a lot of our flowers are inconspicuous and they don't have much of a scent because a lot of them are pollinated by moths or flies and things that probably don't really care so much about that. But these ones are so fragrant that if you walk into a whole grove of wolf willow, uh, it can be actually overpowering. It's, they're very, very fragrant. And again, having those bright yellow flowers, uh, good for the pollinators. And it just gives that successional, this is a plant that if you're using, well, like if, da- if Dan and Kevin were, were using it in a landscaping project, it's got year-round value because you can see uh, the pretty flowers in the spring. You've got that silver foliage that starts coming out. You've got those berries that last through the winter. It makes a great uh, wind row or uh, snow catch. It helps with the soil erosion. Like there's so many good things about it, right? Multifunctional. <laughs> yes, very multifunctional. I love that so many of our natives are multifunctional. So that's the other thing is if you've got limited room in a, in a yard or something, to pick these plants that have the, the multifunctional aspects to them because then you're getting more bang for your, your one plant, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. I'm just reading um, the Chinese herbal Bible again. You can, how big is I'm just curious because, I mean, Chinese herbology goes way, way back, much longer, yeah. farther back than our, our North American uh, medicine and that kind of thing. How how fat is that book? <laughs> I, I actually, it just has one room dedicated just to that. Yeah, it's just a book that's for all the plants that you can use for oh, that's awesome. um, medicinal use and all those And stuff. I would guess, yeah. I mean, not all of them would be exactly the same species, but there's probably a relative similar, that's similar. Similar, and, yeah. And, like some of them, the and some of them might be the same. Berry. For the silverberry, it's like a subspecies. So because here it's called the... Elagnus glabra. Elagnus commutata. Commutata, okay. Yeah. So the Chinese species, it's the glabra. Mm. I guess it'll be similar because it's the same uh, family. Family, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it says that species, that family, um, it's used for bronchitis. What? Okay. So you can boil the leaf in water in hot water and every day you use it twice and every time you use 1.5 to 3 grams yeah i, I would get <laughs> well i would guess you wouldn't use very much because like i said the, with the flowers and being so fragrant and, and the the it being so astringent like a yeah, little so would probably go a long way right it's good for asthma uh bronchitis and also cough hmm. <clears throat> yeah well that's good for treating diarrhea too 
I don't know. I've never tried and, those stuff. Really and I didn't realize them. that the common name for it is goat nipple. <laughs> what? Why would that be? Does it increase milk production in goats or something? <laughs> like, I don't know. I have no idea, but that's the first thing that popped up. That will be for another podcast. Why is it called goat nipple? Right. Yeah, the, the fruit so. probably looks like a goat nipple. Well, that could be too, I suppose. Yeah, and of course, for for habitat, um, moose, deer, elk—they all browse the the brush, and it makes great cover and nesting sites for a lot of birds and small mammals. Oh, and then back to that, uh, the nitrogen fixing properties that it has. So apparently, they've done research planting it in orchards, and it can help increase orchard production by 10% when used as a companion plant in an orchard. Um, And it also increases forage production of grasslands. So in areas where it's out on the prairie in a native scape, the grasses there will actually have more nutritional value for the animals. And maybe, I don't know, maybe these people, I realize for hay, you don't really want shrubs in the way because then you can't cut your hay and bale it. But if you're looking at more of a ranch setting where you're just rotational grazing your livestock, maybe it wouldn't hurt to have some wolf willow spread in there to help improve your uh, your crops and your soil. Hmm? Things to think about when you're planning your yards or your yeah. landscape. And uh, oh yeah, and so when Kevin was talking about the uh, for coughs and stuff, I actually could see that because they say it's quite astringent, and astringent means to dry like it's got a drying ability um so i could see if you've got one of those really phlegmy coughs or, or bronchitis you know some of those things that um it would help dry out your your lungs or your mucous membranes right yeah that kind of makes sense but yeah so that is our wonderful wolf willow i'll send kevin some more pictures so hopefully we can get them posted somewhere for people to be able to link and start putting some visuals to what we're talking about And for that matter, if people want to send us pictures of things they've seen or make comments, that would be where they can go to either fescue.ca or mmgardens.ca or check us out on... Kevin, what is it? You're on Twitter? Yep, Twitter. How do they find you there? Uh, I don't know, just at fescue naturalization, I guess. Okay, okay. No, I was just wondering what they would search to, to find you sort of thing. Because, yeah, you can find me on, on Facebook at uh, Medieval Manor Gardens, too, if you want to get chitty-chatty or post pictures or something. Because, yeah, we like to see where people are going in Alberta and, and elsewhere and what kind of plants you're coming across. And maybe even start sharing your yard. Say, hey, uh, I've got this yard that I want to do something with. Can you help us out? Or here's this yard that I've been doing some native scaping too. What do you guys think? And Um, yeah that'd be great if we get people starting to interact a little more cool 